That helps. Good morning. Welcome. Um, I want to welcome all our guests and visitors. Thank you for being here. We pray that the Lord will bless you richly uh, during this time. Uh, In our announcement bulletin, there are a number of events for this week. So later on, please take the time to uh, to take note of that. There's some uh, kickoffs for the uh, Girls of Grace and the Cadets and the uh, Single Young Adults Group. Um, but two things to note today. One, this is the last day to sign up for a church picture directory for a printed copy. Um, there's a sign-up sheet on the table in the narthex, so please take note of that. Um, and then after the worship service this morning... Um, We'll give you time to, to grab your cookie, but then, uh, then we're going to have a parent meeting for Sunday school and catechism parents in the sanctuary. Um, just a brief meeting. We'd like to talk to the parents before catechism and Sunday school start next week, and uh, that'll be followed by a brief teacher meeting. So um, please do take note of that. But right now... We have the privilege of worship. And the only way that that privilege can be a blessing to us and an honor to God is if He's blessing us. So let's take a moment uh, to ask the Lord for His blessing in a moment of silent prayer, and then we'll conclude by praying together. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our needs. Lord, we pray that you would provide for each one who has gathered here this day, that we might hear and respond to your word aright, that we might proclaim your praises in a way that is honoring to you, and that as we go forth from this place, we might do so having been refreshed with you and your perfect presence with us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together. The Lord calls us to worship with these words from Psalm 135. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. 
Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 319 in our Psalter hymnal, number 319. In Deuteronomy 5, God speaks to us the words of His law. And that law is very good. It's a series of commands that leads us to turn away from the sin in which we were born, that we might live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is reflective of God's character. That's what 
those who belong to the Lord ought to strive to do out of gratitude to Him. But, as we see those commands, as we see what they command us to do and what they command us not to do, as we evaluate our hearts to see whether our desires are aligned with these commands or not, these, this law humbles us. Because it shows that we cannot come before God on the basis of what we have done. This law reveals that we are guilty and that we are powerless to stand before God by our own merits. And so it casts us to our knees seeking the mercy of the Lord, seeking the forgiveness that only Christ can bring, seeking the righteousness and the holiness that only He could obtain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And take all that law and distill it down to its essential essence. And it is as Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this law humbles us because we have failed to uphold it. And so our proper response is to praise God for His law, to praise Him for His uprightness and His justice, but also to confess that our hope lies not in our doing of the law, but in His on our behalf. 
that our hope lies in His grace, in His mercy, and that therefore we desire to keep His law in gratitude. Let us make that confession using the words of a portion of Psalm 119, which we find in Selection 241. Number 241 is our confession of sin, but also of faith. In Romans 8, the Lord tells us all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Lord has assured us that if we have his spirit, we have life in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, then you have his spirit. What a blessing to know that we are sons of God. Children of the King, whom He will always bless and never, never allow to be turned aside. Now, those who are born into a believing family, they receive the promise of that covenant. That God will be our God. That He will make us to be His sons and daughters. We receive that at an early age in baptism, which is the sign and seal of that covenant. But it's not automatic. All of God's people, when we hear that law, are called to express our grief over our sin. All of God's people daily are to express our confidence lies not in ourselves, but in Christ. 
all of God's people are to continually renew their vow to the Lord that they want to live for Him, that they desire to put off the old man of sin and to put on the new man who is being renewed daily after the image of Christ. And we ask our children, our young people, as they come to an age of discernment, as they come to an age of maturity, to express that maturity by coming before the congregation and professing their faith publicly, taking vows that indicate their understanding of who they are in Christ. Now that's just one step, right? That's a public declaration before the church, but we expect that that will be repeated out in the world as we confess our faith before unbelievers, before kings, before co-workers. This morning we have the privilege of of having Peter Sneller come forward and profess his faith. Peter, I would encourage you to come forward. I'm going to stay up on one step so I at least have a chance. Peter, thank you for coming forward today. We thank our God concerning you for the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. We praise Him for working faith in your heart so that you now desire publicly to profess your faith in the presence of God and His Holy Church and to enter into the privileges of full communion with the people of God. You are now requested to answer sincerely the following four questions. Peter, do you wholeheartedly believe the doctrine contained in the Old and New Testament and in the articles of the Christian faith and taught in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation? And do you promise, by the grace of God, to continue steadfastly in this profession? Secondly, do you openly accept God's covenant promise, which has been signified and sealed to you in your baptism? And do you confess that you despise and humble yourself before God because of your sins? And that you seek your life not in yourself, but only in Christ Jesus, your Savior. And third, do you declare that you love the Lord and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His word, to forsake the world, to put to death your old nature and to lead a godly life? And then fourth, do you promise to submit to the government of the church? And also, if you should become wayward either in doctrine or in life, to submit to its admonition and discipline. Peter Sneller, what is your answer? I charge you then, beloved, by the diligent use of the means of grace and with the assistance of your God to continue in the profession that you have just made. I now welcome you to full communion with the people of God and rest assured that all the privileges of such communion are now yours. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Welcome, brother. Thank you. Um, we have a tradition of presenting a book, typically a Bible, to those who have uh, made profession of faith. We give you this with the reminder that what you're doing here today is, it's a step, but it's only one step along the way. 
We are called to discipleship throughout life and unto eternity. And this is the key to that discipleship. Use it well. Read it often. And let it guide all of your life, both in church and throughout the world. The Lord be with you, brother. And you'll join me out there to greet afterward, right? Excellent. Beloved, we need to pray for Brother Peter and indeed for all of our young people. Um, In addition, um, just a couple of prayer concerns and updates. Um, We sent out a prayer concern earlier in uh, last week uh, for Norm uh, Shoot. Shoot? Scoot. Scott? One of those. Norm Scott, um, Charlie DeCuckoo's brother-in-law, um, he was being treated at Butterworth Hospital for a dissection, a tear in the aorta, um, and he is still there, but when we sent out the request, it was, um, he was in the ICU, answer to prayer, God's, God's mercy. He didn't go in for that, he went in for um, kidney stones, which will get you to the hospital in a hurry, and uh, it was... There, when they were treating him for that, that they found that he had a tear in his aorta. Um, God's perfect guidance. Um, He is now out of the uh, ICU, and they're finishing up some uh, changes in medication and treatment, and then they expect that he will be released soon. So praise the Lord for that, and please continue to keep Norm in your prayers. Um, In addition, we are in the habit, as as we should be, of praying... Um, regarding our national sin of abortion. And um, it is worth noting that the only abortionist, full-time abortionist in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, died August 24th, resulting in the closure of Heritage Clinic for Women, which is the misnamed... Uh, abortion facility at 320 Fulton. That's an answer to prayer that that clinic is closed. And we don't know whether someone will step in to fill that void. We certainly should pray that they will not. But praise the Lord that the full-time abortion clinic in Grand Rapids is closed, is at an end. We should, we should recognize that God has done this. With that, beloved, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that from the beginning you have embraced children in your covenant together with their parents. We thank you that from the first you have included Peter And all of those who have been baptized and whom you bring in to the fullness of faith. That you have chosen them and called them and granted them the many blessings of the covenant community. We praise you for adding the special grace of your Holy Spirit. So that of Peter's own will, he would come forward this day to profess your faith and your truth and to consecrate his life to your service. 
We earnestly pray that you would continue to carry on the good work that you have begun in him until the day of complete redemption. That you would increase in him daily the many gifts of your grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We pray that you would grant him the happiness of promoting the glory of his Lord and the edification of your people. Deliver him in the temptations of his life and in the final trial of death. And in that day when you make up your jewels, we pray that you would set him and all of your servants in your crown, that they may shine as stars unto your praise forever and ever. And Lord, we pray for our other children who have not yet professed their faith. We pray that you would so work in their hearts that they would be eager and earnest to do so that they would be anxious to to stand before the consistory and before the church and before the world, openly professing that their hope is in Christ and in Him alone, and demonstrating that you have given them the maturity that they need. We pray for our soon-to-begin catechism and Sunday school classes. We ask that you would prepare well the teachers that they might impart the truth of your word with faithfulness and with joy. We pray that you would work in the hearts of our children, that they would receive those truths with eagerness, recognizing them as true and as more valuable than silver or gold. Bless our parents, that they would be tireless and joyful in supporting that work and in adding to it at home. And Lord, we pray that in all of this you would cause this congregation to grow in the knowledge and the the fear of the Lord. Make it to be our joy to confess you before a watching world and to live in a way that demonstrates that we belong to you. Father, you have blessed us beyond all measure and we thank you for that. We thank you for the many prayers that you have answered, the healing and the help you've provided, the comfort with which you have enwrapped us. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over those who stand in need of particular care. We think of, of uh, Dan and of Joel, both receiving uh, treatments for cancer. Likewise, Jamie, as she continues receiving chemotherapy, we pray for your care and your strengthening for them. We pray for uh, Linda as she continues dealing with uh, digestive issues and for Keith and Lori dealing with uh, dementia and Parkinson's and uh, headaches and various other ailments. Lord, we pray for your continued blessing and care upon them. Likewise of our loved ones outside of this congregation. For, for Norm, Lord, thank you for uh, giving him the healing and the strengthening that you have provided. And we pray that you would allow him to continue healing um, at home in the near future. We pray for Judy's sister-in-law, Marcia, as she deals with the effects of pancreatic cancer, for Travis's cousin, Nick, undergoing treatment for uh, colon cancer, for uh, John's grandson, Barrett, as he deals with a number of different medical issues, for Larry's son, Dan, recovering from heart issues. Lord, we pray for all of these Lord, we pray for others. You know those of our members who are dealing with 
weakness of the body, with grief of the heart, with doubts and fears. Lord, you know all of our struggles, the sins that we feel that we can't overcome, the heartaches that weigh us down, also the joys, those members among us who are expecting children, who who are nurturing little ones within. We pray that you would bless and strengthen them and, and those who are preparing for marriage as you prepare them to be knit together as one. Father, we pray for each one. We ask that you would comfort, strengthen, bless, and guide as only you are able. We pray, Father, for our church as a whole, that you would disciple us and build us up. Bless our elders, our deacons, and our pastor as they gather for counsel and consistory this week. Give them wisdom and grace in doing so. Bless our um, Bible studies with cadets and Uh, girls of grace and young adults and young peoples. Lord, bless each of them and grant that these efforts might be used to build up the church. Most of all, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would be glorified in us as each of us individually and all of us together come to recognize the goodness of being called your sons and daughters in Christ. Make us to be eager to tell a watching world who you are and what you have done and how powerfully you answer prayer. Lord, we stand in awe of the fact that the abortion clinic in Grand Rapids has been closed. Father, we thank you for that and we pray that you would multiply that work a hundredfold that many of these murder mills would be closed throughout the nation. And not just through circumstances, but through changed hearts as our communities come to recognize that life is a gift from you and that you who send life will provide for those lives growing within. As you raise up your people to take up the challenge and the joy of welcoming into their homes and into their lives those children that, uh, that aren't welcome or who are... Uh, an overwhelming surprise to their birth mothers. And Father, we pray that you would use us to lead the nation in repenting of that wicked sin and of many others. To that end, Lord, bless your word as it's proclaimed among us this day and among your people in every place where they are gathered. Grant that it might be proclaimed faithfully and boldly And that it might be used by your spirit to transform, to equip, and to embolden your people in living in a manner that demonstrates that you are the Lord, the King, the ruler of all life. That you who have delivered us now are transforming us that we might become what we were created to be, exercising dominion on your behalf, bringing glory to your name. Now, Father, we pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.
Well, beloved, as we prepare to look to God's Word, let's stand and sing Psalm 105, Selection C, from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, 105C. We're going to sing the first three stanzas. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. You'll recall that we last looked at the tenth plague. The final act of, well, not the final act, but the final formal act of judgment upon all of Egypt. We're going to see that there's one more act of judgment coming up. Um, But God led his people out so that they truly were delivered from their slavery, enriched by the gold and silver of Egypt, reminded that it was by God's hand and not their own. And now, in chapter 13, we're going to look at the first uh, 16 verses in particular. We'll read through verse 22. We're going to see how God calls them to establish a practice of remembering what he has done and what the significance of that is. Starting to read at verse 50 of chapter 12, we read, All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. 
Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord your God, uh, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at, at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Amen. Beloved of God the Father in Christ the Son, we are the people of the Word. Reading Scripture, reciting the Creed, preaching the Gospel, it's all the Word. In many ways, that sets us apart as unique, that reliance on the Word. Other religions... Focus on works. They focus on statues and images made by the hands of men. They focus on religious acts and rites that they are required to do. 
But we emphasize the Word. We rely on the Word that is written and we are saved by the living Word of God who is Christ. However, our God who made us knows well that we also learn in other ways. We learn by seeing, we learn by acting. He created us with the ability to learn in those ways. And while he emphasizes our need to put the Word first, he also provides other ways of learning. This text is one of the places where he establishes a couple of those other ways of learning. Israel, at this time, is on its way out. They haven't yet crossed the sea, but they have left their homes, they have left their slavery works, they have departed from Egypt proper, and they're on their way. And now they need to begin to learn the meaning of what has happened to them. Now they must begin to contemplate the height, the depth, the breadth of the mercy that God has shown to them. And they must begin teaching themselves to regularly remember, to regularly contemplate both what God has done and its significance for who they are. And it's that discipline of remembering which God is establishing with His people in this text. He's helping them to see the fullness of what he has done, helping them to plumb the depths of the significance of the way that they've been delivered, and giving them a means of continually remembering what has been done and who they are. Today we see that Israel's Redeemer teaches his people to remember who they are. That's our theme, and it's important. Because the world and the devil strive to distract us from who we are. They want us to identify ourselves by our work, by our race, by our nation, by our hobbies, by our friends. Anything else. Anything connected to the world. That's what they want us to identify ourselves by. But that should not be what lies at the heart of our identity. We are the people of the Word. We are the people of the Lord. And that must stand at the heart of who we are. Therefore, Israel's Redeemer teaches His people to remember who they are. And He does so first with a ceremony emphasizing Israel's exodus from slavery. That's our first point. Now, we encounter that point really starting in verse 3. We're going to come back to verses 1 and 2. They uh, sort of speak to all of this text, but most directly to the latter part. So we're going to really start looking at verse 3, which has two parts. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. He's telling the people to stop. Take note of this day of deliverance. They need to pause. In the, in the midst of the excitement of their departure, they need to pause and recognize the significance of what's happening to them. You were powerless, mere slaves, but now you are free. You had no identity of your own. Pharaoh identified you as his worker bees. An instrument in his hand. 
But now you have been set at liberty by God. Remember this day. No leavened bread shall you eat. Now, what is the connection between those two things? Well, let's understand what we're saying here. Kids, leavened bread is bread with yeast. Most of the bread you eat is leavened. It has those little holes all through it. Those holes are created by the gas that is formed by leaven or yeast within the bread dough. Today, when we're making bread, leavened bread, we go to add the yeast we add something that looks like fine sand. But back then, they didn't have that powdered yeast that comes from a factory. All they did was they saved a bit of dough from each batch, and the next time they made bread, they would put that bit of dough in the new, the new bread dough, and they would mix it in. That dough already had yeast in it, and that yeast would spread into the new dough, and they'd save a bit of that for the next time also. So what does... That have to do with their deliverance from Egypt. Well, understand, when they left Egypt, they left completely. They left behind their old homes, their old scenery, their old way of life. They left behind their slavery to Pharaoh and his people. They left behind their humiliation as those who were helpless. But they left behind far more than that. They left behind their sin and their unholiness. They left behind their alienation from God and from His worship. They left behind, symbolically, all that made them, all that enslaved them to misery. They even left behind their old bread dough, their old yeast. That yeast became symbolic at this point of the whole of their exodus. That yeast was old, right? It's a piece of the old dough that would normally be imported into the new. But they left it behind. Along with their slavery, along with their humiliation, along with their misery, along with their indistinction from the peoples of the land, from the people that didn't believe in God, along with their inability to worship, along with their unholiness. In telling them to eat nothing containing yeast, God was calling them to remember. Remember how you came out from the land of Egypt, how suddenly, how catastrophically, how immensely. Remember how you left absolutely everything behind, even your old bread dough and including all of your misery. But then with his next breath, he points them to what is ahead. Long before God had made a promise to his people, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, God said that their children would inherit the land where they were dwelling. It was the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. But those wicked people in their rebellion against God, were due for judgment. And so God was going to use His people to judge them, and He would bring them into this rich land with all of its riches. They would inherit cities they did not build, orchards and vineyards they had not planted, richer riches that they had not earned for themselves. God had promised all of it to them, and now finally it's happening. He's delivering them out of their misery, out of their slavery, and into the fullness of what He has promised 
the riches, the glory, the goodness. So what's the message? Why is Moses telling them this? Listen. In their going out, he wants them looking ahead. He doesn't want them identifying themselves merely as former slaves. There's no future in always looking back. He wants them looking at where they're going. What God has promised. What God Himself is doing. And so God initiates a ceremony, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to help them remember, to help them orient themselves properly. He says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be, uh, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory. Why? To remind them. To remind them how completely and absolutely God delivered them from all of the ugliness and the bitterness and the misery in which they once lived. And to remind them also how God was bringing them into something brand new. Something good. Something glorious. Something gracious. Something that is going to fill them with being identified by Him. This ceremony is to be a means of teaching their children. Verse 8. It's not enough for Israel to just perform, for them to just go through the motions. They have to do it, yes. But the purpose is not the doing. The purpose lies in the remembering. And so their children, when they see this, when they see that suddenly all our bread is flat, when they see that mom and dad have thrown out the the dough starter that normally sat in the kitchen, and they asked, why are you doing this? What's the meaning? then they must answer, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. In other words, they're to explain the ceremony by means of the deliverance. They were to teach their children all that God was doing with the Exodus, how He was delivering His people out of their misery and how He was bringing them into full reliance on Himself that they might receive the blessings that he had long ago promised. The Feast of Unleavened Bread would teach their children how God had delivered even them. Because they were born to a people who used to be slaves, but who now were free. A people who used to be subjected, but now were living in the liberty of God's mercy. Moreover, he says in verse 9, It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This ceremony was not merely to teach the kids. It was to teach them. Look at what God compares it to. A sign on your hand. You have a sign on your hand. You can't miss it. Right? You see your hand countless times in the day. If something is written on your hand, you're going to see it. And a memorial between your eyes. You won't see that. Everyone else will. Everyone else will notice that. The goal is that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. This reminder is meant to bring them to remembrance of God's law. Because God's law, it shows them their misery, right? 
that their deliverance was not merely from a physical enslavement to Pharaoh. It was also a deliverance from the sin into which they were born, the rebellion that they constantly embraced. That their deliverance was not merely out of Egypt, but out of the dominion of Satan himself, whom they once served. And then the law shows them, because you've been delivered, now you are to serve the Lord. Now you belong to Him. Now your life is to be filled with a new service. Because you belong to Him. And the law shows us that too, doesn't it? It shows us how to put off the old so that we can put on the new. It shows us how to put off the image of Adam in his sin so that we can take up the image of Christ in his holiness. This ceremony was to be something that they would see and it would remind them and that others would see so that they could testify to the world, this is what God has done and therefore this is who I now am. Now put it all together. This ceremony was meant to remind their children, their hearts, their world, look at what God has done, how He has delivered us out of our misery and how He has brought us into the fullness of His promise. And folks, that's not for them alone. We don't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread anymore. Along with all of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, it was brought to an end when Christ Fulfilled all of the promises. But it wasn't just discarded. It was replaced. We don't have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but we do have the Feast of the Lord's Supper. And it does much the same. It's a unique meal, which we are commanded regularly to partake of. It's a meal, it's a ceremony of remembrance instituted by God. The Lord's Supper is for us the visible reminder that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for them. It teaches us how God delivered us from our slavery. Not slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, but slavery to sin and to Satan and to death. We were delivered just as truly as they were when our Passover lamb was sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 or verse 7. Because our Passover lamb died, we have been delivered from death and from the fear of death. And because our Passover lamb lives again, we have been given the promise of new life. New life received even now as God lives with us through His Holy Spirit, as He guides us by His Word, as He transforms every aspect of our lives. But new life that will reach its fullness when Christ returns and transforms the heavens and the earth and we're able to use to the utmost all of the gifts, all of the abilities, all of the opportunities He gives that we might serve Him in the fullness of blessing. As the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for Israel, so the Lord's Supper is for us. It is an opportunity to teach our children. Mom and Dad, don't be embarrassed When your kids ask questions about the Lord's Supper, they're meant to. It's meant to provoke their questions. So try to answer those questions beforehand. And if they ask in the midst, say, in a minute. And then afterward, answer all of their questions. Explain it all to them. Talk to them about how the bread demonstrates how Christ, the Lamb of God, allowed His body to be broken for us, allowed Himself 
to suffer the full pain of hell so that we could know the glory of heaven. Talk to them about how the wine demonstrates His blood being poured out so that we could live. And how that unites us, how we, being many, are joined as one in the Lord's Supper, even as we are joined as one in Christ. And take time yourself to remember. As you're preparing for the Lord's Supper, read God's law. Let it show you your sin. Let it remind you of the misery that once held you captive, from which you have been delivered. Let it instill in you a newfound desire to repent of your sin. And then after you've partaken of the supper, look to the law again. Grateful that Christ has nourished you unto fullness of life. Thankful that you now have the promise of eternal life in the fullness of His blessing. Use that law to renew your commitment to living entirely for God. However, Moses doesn't stop with that Feast of Unleavened Bread. He goes on to institute a second ceremony, a ceremony demonstrating their adoption as sons and as saints. And that's our second point. He says in verse 11, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. And then Moses tells them how to do it. The firstborn males among their livestock, cows, sheep, goats, they're to sacrifice. The firstborn male donkeys and unclean animals, they're either to sacrifice a lamb for them or to break their neck, to kill them. The firstborn among their sons, they are to redeem with a lamb. Later on, there'll be further instruction telling them how if they uh, can't afford a lamb, they can use birds. The question is why? Why must they do that? Well, the answer we find at the very start of our reading. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. When you consecrate something, you set it apart as uniquely belonging to the Lord. It's to be regarded as sacred. It is God's property. It is His possession. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Did you hear that? Consecrate it. It is mine. The Lord claims ownership of every firstborn in Israel. A few weeks ago, you may recall we talked about the importance of firstborn sons. In ancient culture, the firstborn son was regarded as special, as unique. And when God sent Moses back to Egypt, remember what he told him? You shall say to Pharaoh, this is Exodus 4.22, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God claimed Israel, all of them, Men and women, young and old, one and all, they all were his firstborn son. That means they were to receive honor greater than the honor given to all other people. They were to receive an inheritance that was greater and different than the inheritance given to anyone else. And when Pharaoh refused to release God's firstborn son, that's when God killed Pharaoh's firstborn. 
and the firstborn of all the families throughout Egypt. Well, now, now we find God claiming the life of Israel's firstborn sons. Not because these members of Israel alone are precious to God, but rather because by means of these firstborn sons and firstborn animals of Israel, God was reminding them, you all are my firstborn. You all are holy to me, my unique possession. As a people, you are consecrated to me, set apart as unique. No one else has a legitimate claim upon you. You are mine. That was not a small matter. Again, there's more regulations about the consecration of the firstborn later in God's law. And when we look at those passages, we find that this consecration of the firstborn was to be taken quite seriously. It was to be done in, or at the temple. It was to be done as a matter of worship. See, the consecration of the firstborn was a, a sacrament of sorts for Israel. A visible ceremony instituted by God, a sign by which he laid claim, not just to that child, but to all his people. Now again, as with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel would use this ceremony to teach their children. When their children saw them leading away the calf of the heifer, they would ask why. And Israel was to tell them, God delivered us. See, sons, we were slaves in Egypt. And Pharaoh was cruel to us. And we called out to God. We cried out to him. And God commanded that we be released because we, all of us, were his firstborn son. We, all of us, were unique to the Lord. And Pharaoh refused. God gave him abundant opportunity to release us. But Pharaoh refused. So God killed all the firstborn in Egypt, in order to release us who were his firstborn. And so now, remembering what God did, we devote all of our firstborn, the livestock we sacrifice, our sons we redeem. And hearing that explanation, the children would see God delivered the people, his unique people, And he did so by the sacrifice of the firstborn. Not the firstborn of Egypt, but the true firstborn, Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately this was a way of teaching Israel in advance about Jesus. Remember how Colossians 1 verse 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was the true firstborn son of God, the one who by natural right, Possessed the privileges of sonship. The one who from the very start, from eternity, was set apart as unique. But God struck down His firstborn son as a substitute for His sinful people. So that He could redeem us from the misery of our sin and from enslavement to Satan and death. So that we could serve Him truly. That was the image to which Israel must be pointed. God killed the firstborn To redeem his people as his firstborn. That was the purpose of this ceremony. God's people must remember this. And it shall be, he says, verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Would be a reminder. 
A reminder of how God set them apart. God claimed them as His unique child and God delivered them by the death of the firstborn. And folks, it means the same to us. The equivalent, if the equivalent of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Lord's Supper, the equivalent of the consecration of the firstborn really is our baptism. Think about it. What is baptism? Baptism is a sign and seal of membership in the covenant of grace. A sign and seal indicating that the one who is baptized belongs to God. A sign that assures us God has promised to adopt us as His own. That ceremony of baptism is a visible reminder. We and our children belong to the Lord. He has set us apart from the children of unbelievers. He has claimed us, redeemed us as His own. And so, as we witness each baptism here, we're called to use it as a reminder. Use it to teach your children. Hey, that was done to you too. Now what does that show us? That water... The way it cleanses the body, that shows how Jesus' blood cleanses the soul. And the way it's put on that child's head means that the promise comes to that child. Now that means that that little boy or that little girl, they have to accept all that Jesus has done. They need to trust the one who put that promise on their head. They need to act, they need to live as those who belong to the Lord, who've been set apart from Him. What a terrible thing if they refuse, right? They've been given such an amazing privilege. That's what Peter did this morning. He took up that promise that was given to him when he was merely an infant in Jeff's arms. And he said, yes, I believe that. I believe God's promises and I believe that they were for me. And I promise to live according to them. I promise to live as one of those set apart, one of those who are part of the firstborn of God. So we need to teach our children that that's what this means. And we need to remember it ourselves. Because of Jesus, I belong to God. Because of what Jesus did in dying and living again for me, I have been consecrated and devoted as God's child. You see, that's how these two ceremonies fit together. First, God reminds Israel, the firstborn belongs to me. Remember that you, Israel, my firstborn son, remember that you are mine. By the death of the firstborn in Egypt, which points to the death of the greater son, I have adopted you as my own, I have set you apart uniquely as mine. And because you belong to Him, you must keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, remembering how completely you've been brought out of your misery, remembering how completely you are to put off all of the old that belonged to your slavery, that belonged to your Egypt, that belonged to your time of suffering under Satan. The old is behind, the new is ahead. The promise of the fullness of God's grace, of God's mercy, of life. That was the message for them, and folks, that is the message for us, because that is who we are. Children, young people, whenever you see a baptism, you remember that was done to you, and that shows you who you are. Now you need to believe that. You need to take hold of that. You need to live according to that. 
I am one who has been set apart, part of the firstborn of God. And whenever you see the Lord's Supper being celebrated, even if you're too young to participate yourself, you remember, this is what God has done for me. Jesus died so that I might live. And because I live, all of the old is behind me. All of the new is ahead. He is feeding me unto eternal life that I might serve Him with the fullness of His gifts in the fullness of His promises. Israel's Redeemer reminds you to remember who you are. He teaches us by His Word, but also by these sacraments. So brothers and sisters, we must use them in a manner that brings that remembrance to mind. And young people, if you understand what that sacrament meant, if you understand what your baptism meant to you and its significance, and you believe that, then you need to be eager to confess that before the world and to confess that before the church and to confess that before the consistory that you might partake fully of this sacrament being nourished unto the fullness of maturity. Look on these signs God has given. Believe what they signify to you and live as those who are the redeemed firstborn sons and daughters of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. For you have done what we could never have done and what no one else could have done for us. You have redeemed us from our misery given us the promise of a life eternal in glory. And you have done it all by the work of your beloved Son. Enable us to remember that each time we see the sacraments and cause us to take hold of it by a living faith each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. In response, let us praise the Lord for the love and the mercy that He has shown to us, both in Christ and in the means that He has given to remind us who we are in Christ. And we'll do so by standing and singing number 462 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Number 462.
Let us pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for how perfectly you provide for each one. In recognition of your goodness and your grace, we worship you now with our tithes and with our offerings. And we pray that you would receive them as a token of our gratitude and that you would bless our deacons with wisdom in the use thereof, that through that use you might receive all the glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 149 from our Psalter hymnal. Number 149 will sing the first five stanzas.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.